Amen. Well, if you're new here or haven't been the last couple of weeks, we're doing a study in the book of Matthew. And last week we began with the genealogy. And, and there was some pretty crazy concepts in that. If you missed it, you can go back. If you go to willowparkchurch.com, click on the Pursuit Community. All of our, all of our um, messages are there. And so check that out. Today we're going to be covering a passage that at first glance seems like something very familiar, but we're going to be covering a lot of extremely difficult scriptures tonight. And so I'm just going to ask that you can just sort of have just a heart of grace tonight as we cover these passages. I was invited one time to a manhood ceremony for one of these guys in our youth group who was turning 16. And on the invitation, there was these pictures of swords and all of these sorts of things. And I was like, what is this? A manhood ceremony? I've never been. And I asked, I kind of called and asked, and it was sort of described as it's kind of like a bar mitzvah. You know what I'm saying? I was like, okay, I've never been. We were each told to bring a word of blessing and just a word of what we've seen in his life. His name was David. And so I showed up not knowing what to expect. And there was, there was 14 other men. And, and each one of us, we were, we were told to bring a present that sort of spoke to his character and who he's becoming. And I'll tell you what, this night changed, it probably changed my life. Each guy spent 10 to 15 minutes just speaking life into David. He was in the middle. And just it went around from man to man to man to man. And at the end, we just invited him into manhood. And this kid was just bawling. At the end of the night, he was radically different than he was at the beginning of the night. And I thought to myself, I'm definitely going to do that to my son and to my daughter. And I'm really hoping that every kid in our youth group can feel that way. That is church. Last week was wonderful here at Pursuit, but as I was just praying for people, I, and we ended up praying mostly for other people, I noticed that most, most of us in this society feel like we don't know who we are. Most men feel like perpetual boys. Like, we just don't know when we actually become men. No one has ever, like, ushered us into manhood. The Jewish tradition of the bar mitzvah is, is, is really kind of interesting that way. Our camp in Asoyus, we, um, we spoke to one of the elders, and he talked about how men, they have a vision quest. And they go and they, they just become a man, and they come back, and the elders just speak life into these boys. So wonderful. And in so many communities, it's like that. But in the West, we have this individualistic idea where we have to just do life on our own, find out who we are, and it leaves us so messed up. All of our houses are just so big, and there's no one living in them. I love seeing how the, the East Indian culture lives, how they build these big houses, and there's just generations living in there, where there's just wisdom being passed on. There's just this feeling where we go about everything through family, and I love that. I seriously think we've thrown away intentional community for this individualistic life. And so church is meant to be a place. Paul says, don't stop meeting together so you can encourage each other. It's that word kaleo, where you could speak identity into each other. It's important. And so in this place, we talked about how we don't want to just come and listen. It's not just me talking here. It's you coming and hearing words for people around you from the Father. And just having the boldness to speak encouragement to each other. Please take that serious. Show up to church and think, God, speak to me. Last Sunday night, I laid in bed and I thought, there's just too many people 
who don't know who they are and it just seems too far gone. And then I read this biography from Mother Teresa. And in 1947, India achieved independence from Britain, but it came at a huge cost. See, Gandhi led this revolution, but the nation was split in two, the mostly Muslim Pakistan and then the mostly Hindu India, and they fought, and a million people died, and it created 14 million refugees. And then Gandhi was assassinated. And these 14 million refugees all descended on Calcutta. They said the streets were just full of the dying. Imagine, 14 million. Try to picture it. Mother Teresa said that there were little kids without parents who were choking on parasitic worms and dying because nobody was there to stop it. Just death everywhere. And she went out in the streets, and she was just trying so hard. She was just doing whatever she could. She said that she came across one man who was being eaten alive by worms, and no one would go near him because of the stench. And she picked him up, and she started praying for him, and he mustered the words, why are you doing this? And she said, because I love you. Somebody asked her, they said, the need is far too great for just you. He said, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing it this way? And she said this. She said, I just look at one person at a time. I love this. She said, I am merely a pencil in God's hand. I love that. It's just who I am. I'm just, I'm just speaking words from the Father for each person. And then she said the next thing, and this is so profound. In Hindi, she had this saying, and this is what it was. It was, ek, ek, ek. And that simply just meant one, one, one. Just one person at a time. That's it. That was her whole life's vision was just that one person. And it's true, we do live in a society where people don't know who they are, where our men feel weak, like they're perpetual boys, where our girls feel like we're defined by what men think about them. And how, how much they're pursued. And there's this feeling that we've just lost the identity from the Father. And so we get to have that. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, it was wonderful. There was a rushing, violent wind. And wind in the Bible always represents the Spirit. The word ruach is a word that means Holy Spirit. It also means wind. This was the Holy Spirit rushing in the room. And there was tongues of fire. This is significant. It's a metaphor. Fire always represents God pillar of fire that the Israelites followed, the burning bush that Moses saw. It's all fire. You see, they had the very words of God. And when the Spirit comes into here, we speak the words of God for each other. That's profound. And we just have the knowledge that people need to hear. So just be bold. Just be really quick to encourage. Be really quick to write notes. Be really quick to just go up and say, hey, can I pray for you? Let's make this community a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit weird, okay? Is that all right? I don't want to come to a place where we just sit and one person uses their gifts and everyone else just gets regurgitated knowledge. That's spiritual milk. Paul says crave meat. Meat. We need meat. And so we're going to be talking about salvation right now. This passage, it's a meaty passage, and we need the Spirit to come and interpret. So let's just spend 30 seconds like we always do. Ask the Spirit to fill you. We can't understand spiritual truth without the Spirit teaching us truth. So just say, fill me with your Spirit. Give me understanding.
Yeah, Jesus, we just pray for your spirit, God. God, we, we pray for just revelation, God. Father, I pray that all the baggage that we have, God, all that we come into this place with, Jesus, God, I pray that you would just take a coal and cleanse our lips, God, cleanse our understanding, renew our minds. Jesus, we just, we want, we want the supernatural, and that's what you are. So, Jesus, we invite you here. Amen. So, salvation is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Have you ever asked yourself recently, like, am I saved? And what does that mean? What am I saved from? And, and do I feel like I'm saved? Like, do I, do I actually live in victory? We sang that song, just about you deserve it all. You get the highest praise. And all these songs that are just huge statements coming from our lips. And I'm thinking, do we all, do we all think all these things? Is this actually what we're, we're talking about? And what about my friend who's fallen away that was baptized at 14 years old after camp? Is he saved? And what, are, what is salvation? Are we talking about heaven and hell here? I think that's what we think about when we hear that idea of being saved, that it's, it's a question of the afterlife. We were doing uh, a ministry in Venice Beach in Los Angeles, and we went with this other guy, and we didn't really know him very well, and he decided we're going to do this huge outreach on this beach. So he ordered so much pizza. We actually had a pile of pizza, like, up to here. It was enormous. And people just started saying, hey, what's that pizza for? And we're like, we're giving out pizza. You want some pizza? And they're like, yeah. We're like, he's like, get in line. (laughs) So after a while, there's a lineup of like 50 people waiting for pizza. And I'm like, this is genius. And then he goes and he puts on a cool leather jacket and he grabs a megaphone and he goes, here we go. (laughs) So then he starts sharing the gospel while people are waiting for pizza. And he's just sharing. And then he says, put up your hands if you want to be saved. And everyone line up, just like, yeah, we're here for pizza. And they put up their hands. And there's this one guy, and he put up both hands. And I'm like, whoa, that guy wants like a double portion. And then I noticed something funny is that he had headphones in. And I kind of was by him, and I could listen to just the loudest gangster rap. He never heard a word. He wanted two pieces of pizza. That's what he wanted. He saw everyone else with their hands up and thought, wow, I want this pizza. Unbelievable. So let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about what it means to be born again. Why don't you turn with me in Matthew? It's the first book in the New Testament. The first chapter, which is obviously chapter 1. And we got up to the end of verse 17, the end of the genealogy last weekend. So it's verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, that is, had sex, she was found to be pregnant through the Spirit. That is an interesting start. Matthew makes this claim through the genealogy that he's obviously the son of Abraham and David, and he's got some really sketchy girls in his family line. But this is the first argument that he's the Messiah, that he is born or conceived to a virgin. Now, this was a big thing. Getting married back then was quite a bit different. You're betrothed by your parents deciding who you are going to marry. And then they would bring that person and say, Joseph, this is Mary. She's going to be your wife. And so for the next one year, 
they got to hang out together, chaperoned. There's no way Joseph and Mary could be alone together. They likely didn't even know each other that well. The idea of romantic love never really came into existence for another 1,800 years. They just, Joseph was like, okay, good. She could churn some butter. Okay, let's get married. And this was this idea. It was like a transaction between people who could help each other. And that's what it was. He likely didn't even really know Mary. And that's really important. So during this time, they were never alone, and there definitely wasn't sex, and she gets pregnant. And remember, Joseph doesn't really know her and doesn't believe her. Sometimes we think, Joseph, why don't you believe? She's your girlfriend. She said it. You're not going to believe her? He doesn't really know her. So no, he doesn't believe her. So then it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He was faithful to the law. When they found the adulterous woman who was having an affair, they pulled her out of the bedroom. She was naked on the streets, and what were all the men of the town about to do? Stone her to death. If a woman was found to not be a virgin on her wedding night, he would literally, the husband, would take her into the streets, and all the men would be alerted and they would kill her with rocks. So this is what is likely going to happen to Mary. She said, I'm pregnant. Joseph is like, the law states you have to be stoned to death. Do do you realize that's what the, the law looked like back then? So he decided instead to just divorce her quietly and hope it just goes away. He's just gonna, you know what? He's He doesn't want to see her stoned to death. He probably likes her somewhat. And so this is what happens. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Whoa. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's from Isaiah 7.14. If you're a note-taker, that's who he is talking about here. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage. That means he didn't have sex with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Whoa. I know it's not Christmas. This is the most common Christmas story. But what we just read, most theologians would agree, is the greatest miracle in the Bible. This is greater than any miracle Jesus did. This is the one. This is it. Unbelievable. A human girl is pregnant, and the dad is Yahweh, God, the Alpha and the Omega. A human girl and God. And there's a baby coming. And the baby's dad is God. (laughs) He's the firstborn of a new creation, and he is the first one without a sinful nature. And this is really important to understand, is that we all have a sinful nature that we were born into. Sometimes it's called the curse, but every one of us... Kids do not have to be taught how to sin. Can I hear an amen? If you have children, you know. 
I was a little sinner. I was the worst. I remember so vividly being little. And my brother was bugging me, Jeremy, and thinking, I want him to hurt. So I put jumper cables on his arm. (laughs) It was the loudest scream for the longest amount of time you could ever imagine. I remember intentionally destroying his stuff. (laughs) Both of my brothers. I remember one time... There was a kid who had special needs, and he was uh, walking down the street, and he was making all sorts of racket. And what did all of us boys do in the neighborhood? We walked behind him and imitated him. And I remember his mom drove by, and she looked at us, and she started to cry. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with all these guys? We have such a problem. No one taught us to put people down. Nobody taught us to be selfish or to covet. No one taught us. We just did. This is just what we do. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. This is our sinful nature, and this sinful nature is passed down through fathers. I'm sorry, Owen. It's reality. It's called federal headship, that the curse, the sinful nature is passed down through the human father. And you were born with a sinful nature because you have a human father. It's quite the idea. And this is why the virgin birth is so amazing. Jesus did not have a human father And so he did not have a sinful nature. This is the great interruption. He had to be born to a virgin. The sinful nature stopped with him. This is profound. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans 5.19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the interruption. And here is what's so cool about this. The virgin birth is amazing and miraculous, but it actually has the ability to make us brand new and to have the sinful nature destroyed. It extends to each one of us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This is adoption. You have a new daddy. You have a new daddy. The sinful nature is destroyed in you. 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, theologically that's amazing. But also that statement at that time would have been so revolutionary. At that time, your only identity came from who your dad was. So if your dad was a slave, you were a slave. The only identity that you had was who your father was, and that's why your last name was Bar and then the first name of your father, because you were identified by your dad. And so the most derogatory term in biblical times, by a mile, the term that was the most offensive was to call somebody a bastard. It is saying you have no value, no father, no inheritance, no one to protect you. You have nothing. 
So that term at that time was incredible. There was a paralyzed man who I spoke about who they decided to bring to the house of Jesus and lower him down. At that time, if you had a physical affliction, they labeled it as, as a sin. They said that you sin, so you have that. And if you're paralyzed, they say that any sort of sin um, that you've done sexually attacks your spine. And so they believed, as they watched this man being lowered, they thought he was a pervert. That's what they all looked at him. They're like, look at that guy. And guess what happened? Was his dad there lowering him down? He was not. He would have been ashamed of this guy and would have left him. He would have no father. And so here he is being lowered down, and Jesus looks at this guy, and what does Jesus say? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. There's just no more powerful title. He's saying, I completely accept you unconditionally, forever. My identity is now your identity. My inheritance is your inheritance. To adopt somebody says, from this point on, everything that's mine is yours. This is what Jesus does. And to the bleeding woman, she's been bleeding for 12 years. And at that time, this would be so shameful. Her family would have disowned her. And she touches Jesus, is healed. He turns around and sees this woman cowering on the ground. And what does he say? He says, daughter. He claims her. This is exactly who he is. And this is the same offer extended to us. He looks at us and he says, my son. He says, my daughter. This is amazing. Listen to how Paul describes it. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba. It's like saying, Papa. It's such an intimate term. Abba. Abba. You're my Abba. We get to call God Abba. He wants to have a relationship with us like that. Wow, we're brand new. He's our identity. Everything that we were is different now. At the old Ark property on the Shushwap, we had an outhouse, and that always attracted a lot of bugs. <laughs> and there's this caterpillar. As I, as I went to go to the washroom, I see a caterpillar right in front of the outhouse, and, and as I looked at it, it was squirming. It was in so much pain. And I looked at it, and it had like 20 or 30 ants on it. And they were just like stinging them and biting them. And I was like, get off of that caterpillar. And so I picked up the caterpillar, and I just started flicking them all off. And they were just, he was completely free of the ants. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And I put him up on a leaf on a tree. And I was thinking to myself, you know what, buddy? You're going to laugh about this in about three or four weeks, after you go into your cocoon, after a sleepy day, you're going to wake up as a butterfly and soar over those guys and think, you bunch of dummies. Look who's tough now, boys. Soaring over those ants. So cool. See, when caterpillars are in the cocoon, something really interesting happens that all of their organs actually get digested. And they form brand new organs. Their old heart won't deal with a new butterfly body, a brand new heart, brand new guts. 
brand new everything. And you know what's really interesting? Is butterflies are sort of known for their beauty and their wings. And the color from their wings comes from their waist. Somehow during that whole process, their waist is transformed into the colors of their wings. Isn't that interesting? Imagine if I come back a little bit later, a few months, and I I go back to that outhouse, and I see a butterfly, the same guy, not that I could tell, but he's back there again, and he's covered in ants, and I'd be like, what are you doing down there? You don't have to be down there. Like, you're new. You've been changed. You can fly now. Like, get up and go. Give her. What are you doing? Man. Why are you going back to those old afflictions? You have a new heart and everything about you. And you know what? It's interesting, but I see this all the time. This is my biggest frustration in life, is that people come to Jesus, and they're brand new, and they're so happy, and they're doing so good. And then two days later, they've just hit rock bottom, and they're back exactly where they were, and they're stuck in their afflictions, and they're right back. And they're just like, you know what? I thought God was going to deliver me. I thought this was way different than how this is turning out. I see this at Rush every single year. Kids just like, God just slamming them. I saw one guy, his, his broken arm was healed. Like completely healed. And I talked to him a couple days later and he's like, you know what? Can you pray for me? I got home and man, Sunday was amazing. He said, but now I think my wife's going to leave me. He says, everything's the same as it was, and, and, and I received Jesus, and I thought I was saved from all my sin, but why am I just back to the same garbage? How come? You see, the sinful nature was put to death, and we're saved, we're adopted. But we quickly went back, and I think we need to understand that we need to adjust our idea of what salvation is. We need to adjust how we communicate it and how each one of us understands salvation. See, Luke 9.23 says this. Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You know what? We are adopted and that's permanent. We are saved forever. But within one day, we will have gone back to our sin. And we will be right back to where we started. One day. Sometimes we think, I don't know what happened. It's been, I received Jesus three weeks ago and now I'm struggling. It's because Jesus said it's one day. You have to do this daily. You see, you have a new heart. You're different. You're a whole new creation. But sin has this horrible hold on us. We live in a tension. We live in this sinful world. And we need salvation from our sin daily. This is what Paul says to the Philippians. Now, this is really misunderstood, so try to follow me here. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, work it out. Does that mean you have to earn being saved? No. Does fear and trembling mean that you're worried about God sending you to hell or or walking out on you? Absolutely not. Paul uses this term fear and trembling a fair amount. 1 Corinthians 2.3, he says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. What he said before that, he said, I have no confidence in my flesh, so I come to you in weakness 
with great fear and trembling. He's saying, I am so afraid I'm going to be tempted and go back to who I was that I am trembling. And I have fear that my inner man cannot deal with this temptation. Fear and trembling has to do with the weakness of our flesh to go back to things that have tempted us. He's saying, I don't have any salvation. I need to go back every single morning because I don't have confidence in my flesh. Let me explain. When he says, work out your salvation, he's not saying, work out being saved. Salvation in the Greek is a word which says soteria. You can write this down if it helps you. Soteria. You got that, Zachy boy? Is it there? No, that's okay. Okay, soteria is this Greek word. S-O-T-E-R-I-A. Soteria. And it means deliverance or rescue. But this is a word that means temporary. It's talking about our sin. He's saying work out your soteria. Work out the fact that you have been delivered from sin because you will go back to it within one day. And it's totally different than being saved. John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Saved is the Greek word sozo. And this means to keep safe, to rescue. It means permanent. Sozo means your adoption is permanent. But the fact is, is that you need salvation from your sin daily. Something has changed in our hearts, though. And so Paul says, work it out, but listen to how you get to work it out. Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You see, he makes you incredibly strong. And when he is within us, we are more than conquerors. So people are like, you know what? I, 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 I'm saved and I know it. I'm adopted and that's permanent. God says that nothing can pluck you from my hand, but I don't feel any victory. And that's because we forgot the fact that we need to every single day rise up again. Every single day, take up our cross. Every single day, work out our salvation, knowing that we are weak. And I need to wake up and know, you know what? Yesterday, I had victory over my sin, but today is a new day. And I need to once again take up my cross, die to my sin. I need to recommit to him every single morning. It's not a weekly or a yearly thing. It's an every single morning And he makes us incredibly strong. He makes the weakest of us incredibly strong. Listen to this exchange in scripture. There's this guy named Gideon. And by the way, Gideon is a great name for, if you're going to have a boy, and you're thinking, I need a good boy name, Gideon. Short, Giddy. He's also one of the coolest guys in the Bible. So Gideon was known as being a really small kid. This was the skinniest weakest kid from a family who was known as being particularly weak. The gene pool wasn't too good. And listen to this exchange that an angel has with Gideon. You see, his people were being tortured by the Midianites. They were actually hiding in caves. And an angel comes up to Gideon and says this. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, what? Who, me? Mighty warrior. Listen to what Gideon says back to the angel. 
says, pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Wow. The way that God looks at us and the way that we look at ourselves couldn't be more different. Am I right? We look in a mirror, and we first, this is scientifically proven, look at all of our faults. It's like, I need braces. New zit. Uh-oh, what's happening there? We look in the mirror and we see all of our faults. It's what we do. If you have a dent on your car and you look at your car, what do you look at? The dent. It's what we do. And so we think about ourselves as being weak. We look at the sin in our lives and we're like, how am I supposed to actually overcome this every single day? I am weak. I have failed in the past every time. I am not more than a conqueror. I don't even want to worship. Who am I? And God looks at us and he says, hello, mighty warrior. Why? Because God is with you. Not because you're mighty in your own strength, because you're not. This is why Paul said, I come to you with fear and trembling, knowing that he is not But God in us, we are able to overcome absolutely anything. This is so beautiful. He sees you, that you're new, and you have new guts and a new heart. He's taken your old crap and made beautiful new colors, and he's made it your beauty. He's taken the things that have destroyed you in the past, and he's raised you up, and he said, this is my child. Look at him. Look at her. She's my daughter. She's my son. And our identity is now completely from him. This is salvation. The fact that he's adopted you. And we have a spirit that cries, Abba. And every single day you have to work out your salvation. You have to rise up and he gives you the power to do that daily. So we can actually be victorious. We might go home tonight and we might be on cloud nine and we might worship and we might have complete victory over the things that have been struggling with. Lust might be completely removed. Envy or jealousy or materialism, whatever it is, might be completely over. But the reality is, is that tomorrow morning, it's back. Jesus says, take up your cross every day. Rise up over it. Decide who is going to be your your Lord, who's going to be your victory. You bring it to him, and God says, hello, mighty warrior. Let me remind you of Romans 8, 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves. The word slaves is speaking about your sin. The fact that your sin is entangling you. So that you may live in fear again. Rather... The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, to daughtership, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We're going to take communion together, and, and I'm just going to invite you, even if you've received Jesus yesterday, you need to come up as his child and to say, I'm, I'm going to work this out today. I'm going to work out my salvation, the victory over the things that destroy me. I'm going to, I'm going to work those out today. And the beauty is that you have a new nature now. The sinful nature is gone. It's actually gone. You have power to overcome. Isn't that amazing? When Paul says we're more than conquerors, you think you can be that by the power of the Spirit? Absolutely.
We're going to worship now. And I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. This is a powerful statement that we get to do when we take communion. It's how we work out our salvation. Is that the Spirit is going to highlight things in you that you need to put to death. Jesus had his body broken so that our sin can be destroyed. And in the same way that when we actually bring them to him, the power is removed.